0: Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, where host and astronaut Charlie Camarda and his intriguing variety of guests share their visions for transforming the way we work, learn, and solve some of the most daunting challenges on Earth and throughout the solar system. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Hello, my name is Charlie Kamada. I was an astronaut on uh, Space Shuttle Discovery's return-to-flight mission following the Columbia disaster. That was STS-114. I will be your host for the Leading Edge Discovery podcast series where I am going to be talking with experts from the United States and around the world all about the importance of science, technology, engineering, math, and especially research on um understanding and solving complex problems. Our first series of episodes are gonna be um, focused on the aerospace industry, in particular, NASA, Boeing, and solving those types of engineering problems. And specifically, we're going to focus on the Columbia accident. And I look at this as being a tribute to the research scientists and the research engineers at Langley Ames and, and Glenn Research Center that helped us not only understand what caused the accident, but, um, but also get us back up and flying safe and preventing us from having a problem and so the first uh, episode was with a good friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Michael Nemeth from NASA Langley Research Center. He talked about his work in research, his his expertise in structural mechanics and how he was able to use that expertise to solve some really daunting problems related to the Columbia accident and return to flight. Now we're going to fast forward in this second episode and talk a little bit about, you know, what led Mike to uh, to retire from NASA, Get walk us through what his thoughts were when the Columbia accident happened, what led him to retire from NASA and what does he see as problems NASA is having right now what changes occurred uh, between the NASA back in the 1970s when he first got hired at NASA to what NASA was like is like uh when he retired and today and so Mike welcome back to the uh to the podcast and walk us through a little bit about what you see as changes in NASA from when you started your, your first experiences being a research scientist, research engineer, structural mechanics branch, and what led you to retirement?
2: Well, early on when I was hired, I think we had mentioned that um, branch heads were technical leaders. You know, there was a culture of uh, do analysis do experiments don't be afraid to fail it's all part of the learning process to get you up to speed there's a, a mentor mentoring was uh, considered of a high value in the organization with the whole idea that we have to take the new folks coming in and nurture them and form them because they are the legacy the organization of you know how we pass down the corporate mem- memory and and so forth so that we keep the organization as a, a viable uh, research tool for f- for future generations for the, for the country. And as I mentioned before, um, out of the NACA, you know, there was a focus on doing research at two levels. And, and one was what you call the applied research, where you uh, can leverage what you're doing and the ideas that maybe you have about how to do things better against a uh, the current problem that you're having, for example, in my career, we looked at how do you refit a C-5 military transport with a composite fuselage or a sections of composite fuselage so that you get a lot of weight out of it without paying a big pen, penalty in strength, things like that. Um, the other was at the fundamental level. You have to be able to give your staff time to look into what's 20 or 30 years out how do you understand the physics of some of these new types of materials that we're trying to use, whether they be composite materials or shape memory alloys or something that we haven't discovered yet. And how do you understand how they're going to interact? Yeah. Or
1: new manufacturing techniques like 3d printing.
2: Exactly. And how that affects things like imperfections, because they can be incredibly important in different types of thin wall structures. So those are the, the, uh, That was kind of the benchmark for me as to how a research organization really functions. And for example, I did some work on uh, composite uh, plates under combined loads, anisotropic plates under combined loads. So an anisotropic material, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, behaves much differently than a metal. If you take a piece of metal and you pull on it, it will generally deform in the direction of the load, whereas an anisotropic material... It may deform in uh, the other direction in shear. It may twist. There's there's lots of things that can go on there, and one of the things that I that I found in looking at plate under combined loads was, for example, um, the the um, the shape of the interaction curves that we were used to seeing for metals and even orthotropic materials. You know that they have an orthotropic material has much different responses in the two perpendicular directions say one along the load being applied and one perpendicular to it was we we started seeing some of these really unusual oblong shaped interaction curves that suggested that loading direction played a big deal on these things and lo and behold some people in Italy took that paper that I wrote about this subject built some test specimens and in fact showed that it was a real phenomenon it wasn't just some hocus-pocus out of analysis, you know. So to me, um, I started seeing that kind of funding for discretionary funding drying up for people to go out and look at long-term, um, understanding long-term behavior or behavior structures in the long-term.
1: Do you remember uh, about what year that was when you started seeing serious uh, levels of funding go down for discretionary research.
2: I'm thinking it was early 90s.
1: At least, I think so.
2: Something yeah. like that. I, I did notice that even through the 80s, it seems like uh, some expertise was disappearing.
1: Yeah, we had, um, for instance, NASA Langley had a guardian angel and structures up in headquarters that provided, um, uh, I guess it was CODAR, was a special budget, a research budget, where you guys could do uh, your your research work in structural mechanics, and it wasn't tied to any program.
2: That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And the branch head was the one who decided where that money was going. That's exactly right. Because and were- that
1: started that started going away probably in the eighties and nineties, right?
2: Yeah. Well. I'm sure there were there were lots of people outside of a research organization that didn't have an appreciation for what we were doing because they're focused on the short term, and so they're saying, "Well, these guys are over there playing in the sandbox. Why should we be funding that?"
1: The famous the famous playing in the sandbox, right? We talked about that in, in in episode one, right?
2: So you can kind of see as they start having successes successes in their programs that maybe they're getting the ear of certain people that are saying well yeah maybe you got a point there until an accident hits then they're up the creek they don't know what to do and where are they going well they're going back to the people that were playing in the sandbox that have you know the skills uh and these skills aren't off-the-shelf skills these are skills that take years to develop and if you set them down for a few more years you know they atrophy yeah Uh, you have to constantly maintain them and when I and that started disappearing, and then um, and then somebody decided that we didn't really need branch heads to be technical leaders, we just needed them to be uh, personnel managers. We'll shift all that over to the program offices, you know, and we'll start trying to focus research or whatever you want to call it in the into the program offices. Well, guess what that turned into that turned into planning, replanning, planning planning again, replanning again, no execution in sight, you know, and then they're wondering why you don't have any deliverables because you're planning their program for them. And it's just over and over and over. It was just uh, such a fruitless endeavor that people like me who who got excited about coming to work because you got to do science, uh, that's just a hard pill to swallow.
1: Yeah, and being told what to do by someone that isn't a technical leader and is just a program manager with very little understanding of research and very myopic vision could well, get to could get to grade on you a little bit, huh?
2: Well, the other thing that started happening also is that as you start um, measuring excellence based on something other than technical expertise in a research organization it opened up a window for certain groups of people to do what i call fail upwards if you didn't do well in our organization you could move out or up into a what you might say was an obscure management side of a division or something the Peter like principle yeah and then, gee, ten years down the road, the person that you moved out of the chain of command, so they didn't make a big mess, is all of a sudden in the chain of command, making decisions now about these things, thinking that they know all about it. I know you came across that idea; it was sickening.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and what was the what was the what was the thing the the event that uh, that point in time when I know you've written letters. I mean, you didn't want to just leave. I mean, you, like many of us had this tremendous loyalty that you described to an organization that we love NASA. Right. And we didn't want to go. We constantly were trying to help fix things, beating our heads against the wall and I know you did this and have written several letters, but what was the thing that caused you to say, you know what? I've had enough. I can't take it anymore.
2: Yeah, I think there were probably several, but one that sticks out in my mind was when I realized that uh, branch heads were basically trying to be people who sought out work in other words, we didn't really have a mission. We were out trying to to find stuff to do that somebody in the industry or some other type of organization thought was valuable and might throw some money, you know, throw some dog bones our way to do things. And um, at that at that point, I realized that we were not going to be a research center much longer. We, you you know, were not
1: we're, pursuing knowledge. You were pursuing the pursuing the almighty dollar and recognition, huh?
2: Yes, and that goes back to the comment I made in the last episode was that uh you know research organizations ought to be looking out 20 30 years in addition to doing applied research you ought to be looking out for for new technologies exploring new options be willing to fail and things like that and I don't think the overhead for us doing that was that high so not at all management no. management in washington was getting short sighted and then the next thing to happen was uh, Dan Golden Decided It was time for all the gray hair at, at NASA to go. And they pushed a huge amount of expertise out the door. And that, to me, I just, uh, I just couldn't take it.
1: You know, you know, Dan Golden was the longest reigning administrator NASA has ever had. I did not. He went through several administrations he survived usually when you get a new president a new vice president they 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 scrub out and, and they get rid of the old NASA administrator they put someone else in Dan golden survived then you remember his mantra
2: right better cheaper faster
1: faster better cheaper and remember what we used to say faster better cheaper pick two.
2: <laughs> Yeah, and only two. And only two. Yeah.
1: Um. Unfortunately, I, I a lot of people hail him as a hero at NASA because he he had some interesting um, satellites that were launched, you know, uh, quicker and maybe cheaper. Uh, but I think he decimated the culture of the research organization and he put the nail in the coffin. Of, of NASA doing becoming that research laboratory that like it used to be back in the NACA days.
2: I think you can build the case too that the military depended on us heavily.
1: Absolutely. You know, we worked on several programs with the, in the military. Uh, I did in the hypersonic side in, in programs like NASP uh, program that were classified. You worked on many uh, commercial aircraft programs, I'm sure. And they relied on people like you and Jim Staunst to understand what happened when they had one of the failures in their Osprey, for instance, right?
2: Jim, Jim was no fan of Golden, I can tell you that firsthand. He, yeah. thought, he thought that he was basically wrecking their organization.
1: Yeah, and I hate to name drop, but there weren't a whole lot of people that I knew that had research cred that really valued what he did to the to the agency, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But um but you know you started having misgivings. You I know it's it it ate at you, right? Emotional emotionally, it was very draining for you and your family because you hated to see this happen. But you didn't just give up. You constantly tried to fix things and you had the courage to bring your voice to people that were high up at NASA Langley, and you've written letters, and you, I know you would meet with anyone, and you never held back, which was a valued attribute, you know, in the old NASA. And I so tell like, us.
2: Uh, I felt like I I uh, had a, a debt I owed to the, all those who came before me. You know, yeah. we, had, we had a tremendous organizational legacy that, that started with, and uh, structured anyway, with Gene Lundquist, who went out and hired the best people he could find, you know, Mel Anderson, I think was the last person that he hired. Mel went to work there and it was still NAC. I don't know what year, Buck Buck Victor, I think was there during the, and certainly Manny was during the NACA years, Manny Stein. And uh, we had people that came through that organization, worked and mentored like uh, Bernard Budiansky. You know, he was a, Extremely well known professor of applied mechanics at Harvard. He had been a branch head in structural mechanics at Langley. Yeah.
1: It was an amazing, uh, amazing place to work and learn. And now here you are. And this is Mike Nemeth. You know, hey, I'm going to try one more time and I'm going to give you my ideas for how we fix this organization. You write a letter to the center director at that time it was uh general roy bridges and and lisa Rowe might have been the deputy back then and do you remember some of the points if if mike if mike nemeth could have fixed nasa what did you see we needed to do
2: yes i laid i laid everything out that i could possibly think of and i mean i i talked to all my colleagues and people that had retired and stuff like that and and i and i just tried to show them that this whole idea of leapfrog technology through program, ans- program offices was nonsense. It's you know they didn't know how to manage it. They had no appreciation for what Langley had done in the past cuz most of them didn't grow up in our culture. They came from outside. You know they didn't they didn't see the value in it. They felt for whatever reason maybe it came from headquarters or what they felt like now we've got to compete with industry and do things you know we we want them to pay us to do things because our government doesn't want to pay for it and working in that environment uh, i just couldn't see myself doing it and at that time i i had found out that you know the the uh Air Force Research Labs at Kirtland Air Force Base was trying to develop an organization, a research organization based on the NACA model, which was what ours was originally based on. That's, I had that's exactly, uh, they it's offered exactly me a tradition right. there, with the equivalent of a branch head, And I came very close to, uh, to taking it. And I, I figured if I'm going down, I'm going down with a fight. I feel like I owe it to uh, the people that raised me, so to speak, in the, in the technical culture.
1: And so, and so, you wrote this letter, and you had five to six points. You had five to six recommendations, and I'm, I'm going to just say them. What what I what I saw was first one was a sustained commitment to research. You know, basically have a research budget that is dis- discretionary. The key technical leaders who should be branch heads. Have the authority to basically use that money judiciously as they feel needed to be spent to advance the knowledge in critical technical areas like structural mechanics, advanced materials, yada, yada, yada. A reduction in non technical overhead. Oh, Lord. Right? Yes. You want to talk
2: about that? The minutiae. Yeah you know bill green used to say all the time when your only tool is a hammer everything looks like a nail (laughs) remember that yeah and it's true the 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 support staff all of a sudden discovered the computer and started having all these codes developed for entering time and attendance and a whole host of of other things and here came this this downpour of minutiae on the research staff that just never seemed to end. So why do I need to learn a piece of software when I can walk down two feet and sign a little book, you know, let the secretary do all that stuff. Don't have the research staff doing secretarial work. That used to drive me crazy. And there were other things like that too.
1: And which leads to improvement to program offices Right. Because all of a sudden, all the funding was now in the hands of program managers. And what did that
2: do? Well, that basically put us in a perpetual state of planning, replanning, planning, replanning, no execution, more planning, more replanning. And then and then the focus would shift. Right. Higher up, somebody would shift the focus up. we got to replan this. So we replan all this stuff and no execution ever going on. And what did they want the researchers? What did they need
1: the researchers to do? Well, they didn't
2: plan it, so they pushed it down to us and they didn't have the technical expertise to plan it.
1: So you were constantly writing white papers, technical reports, and highlight charts for them to use to sell to upper management.
2: That's correct. And PowerPoint presentations, they must have put, I don't know how much money in Microsoft's pocket.
1: We talked a little bit about branch heads no longer being technical. That used to be a revered position. Uh, I remember people like Jim Starnes refused to be promoted because they wanted to be at that first line technical supervisor because that was the best position to have. You have these amazing people like you and the other members of your branch, and you could sit down and brainstorm and carve out amazing Areas of work to do to advance the state of the art.
2: Jim was smart enough to recognize too, at least in my case, he would find out what you're interested in, what you're good at, and he would let you go down that path rather than trying to drive a square peg on the round hole. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And that and that's and, and the other good attribute of a good technical branch head is they provided that cover for you. They were that buffer from upper management and maybe those program offices from demanding too much of your time.
2: And then the reorganization right. started coming, and then they moved Jim off into some obscure position where he basically had no influence at all. And that just broke my heart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It were, he didn't get the recognition that he deserved at the end. finally, after his passing, we did uh, commemorate the, the Structural Mechanics Laboratory. It's the James H. Stones structural mechanics laboratory for the amount of the amount of impact he had on aerospace structures. Right? Well that
2: laboratory would have disappeared if he hadn't have taken an active role to keep it intact. That's a fact. You know
1: Mike before before but, uh, we
2: let go me ahead one, let me tell you one more thing about the Branch head business. So
1: absolutely.
2: Anyhow we reached the point in all this nonsense that many of the uh, well, I had been an assistant branch head for like three years, okay, under Damodar, and it got yeah. to the point it was so distasteful that I, that I said, Damodar, I can't do this anymore. I'm I'm going back into the research staff. I, I just don't want to do it because I didn't get a. I already had a fifteen when I became an assistant branch head, so there was no financial incentive for me to be there. So I went back into the to the research staff to get away from the nonsense that was going on constantly, and. uh Several years later, you know, many of the people in our organization came to me and they said, Look, you know, is going to be leaving to go to Glen or whatever. And we need to, we, we need somebody that we respect and trust to be a branch head. Would you consider doing it? And so I stepped up. And that was about the time that uh, I had pointed out to Lisa Rowe that John Malone might be a good choice for a division chief. Yeah. So, anyhow,
1: that was a great recommendation, and she took you up on it, thankfully.
2: Yeah. So I put together, or the way I approached this was, I approached it with a thought that, okay, I want to see if they're going to deliver maybe on some of their lip service they're giving everybody about you know, reinvigorating research. So I approached this whole thing about how I would manage the organization as if I was going to be a technical manager like Jim. And when I got into the final interview for all this mess, the first question they asked me was, what are you going to do to bring business into Langley? At which point I said, nothing. <laughs> needless to say, I didn't become the branch head. They hired it gave some, gave it to someone who wanted to be a business manager and could care less about maintaining the technical discipline. And, um,
1: and, and so Mike, point, we're, we're going to, you know, one, go ahead, Mike, go ahead. I don't want that, to at come, that
2: point. That's when I started looking for another job.
1: And, and Mike, w- w- one of the last things you mentioned and what we're going to talk about is you mentioned you were a GS 15 and and the promotion process and how and how that degraded because in my mind you should should have been a special technical position up there at the same level as an SES position with your expertise and your international uh, renown and recognition and um unfortunately NASA never had a dual career ladder where you could rise up and and um get the 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 not not only the recognition but the, re, the financial reward that you deserved at the same level that people could rise up in the managerial position. Unfortunately, uh, and, well, and your sole worth was um, uh, was measured by how much money you managed as opposed to your
2: effectiveness, right? Yeah. Well, I, after after the uh, accident investigation settled down. Um, There there was an opportunity to get a, what would they call them, that position. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, a
1: senior senior fellow or an ST position?
2: Yeah, senior technologist, yes. There was an opportunity to do that. But um, when I looked at what they wanted me to do, I realized it was going to be nothing but firefighting. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it would have been. Remember, Ralph Rose started the NASA Engineering and Safety Center and he handed out all these free ST positions to people. And the people that clamored for those positions, unfortunately, were not the really good, not the not the best of the best uh, uh, researchers, but people that were highly competent, but really wanted the. the recognition, the position, the the money, if you will.
2: Yeah, well, the money wasn't that much more, but I told Damador that that point he'd come he had come back. I think he was what assistant division chief or something. Then.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And um, I, when we started discussing the, the uh, duties, I said, you know, this is not what I want to do because I was a person driven by the science. Yeah, right. I don't want to be a firefighter. And, and if I if I had have gone down that route, I think I would not have published what I consider to be some of my best work. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I look back on how many people had to retire back in the old days that ma- didn't make it past GS thirteen. And I thought, man, I'm I'm doing well. I'm going to be well. I'm going to retire as a GS fifteen. So I really have nothing to complain about. You know, comparatively speaking.
1: And the other thing that you were able to do, Mike, Mike, you were able to mentor and raise several amazing people in that branch. You probably could have, if you lasted a little bit longer, could have raised many more that were sorely needed to, to take over um your research and what you were doing and, and to move it forward. Mike, we're gonna we're gonna close out today, but I just wanna say that I I wanted to have you on the first podcast I ever did, uh, because I I have so much respect for you as a person, as a researcher, your integrity, your courage. You're a true friend of Charlie, an FOC. And I, I showed you my flight book that I took with me to space on STS-114 right after the accident I have so many great people that I was like you, that I, I I took your name, your phone number, that I could call you from space. And if I needed your help without interfering with going through anyone else at Mission Control, I knew that I could trust you to do the right thing and, and, and keep us safe in space. And Mike, I want to thank you for this. I want to thank you for what you've done for the country. And, and thank you for ha- for being my first guest on the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast, buddy.
2: Thank you. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leading Edge Discovery Podcast with Charlie Camarda, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.